You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. As always, it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at the gate. Uh, Over the past couple of months, we've been being encouraged in our own faith through studying the heroes of faith, which are outlined in Hebrews 11, uh, and that's during our sermon series, A Great Cloud of Witnesses. Today, we'll be continuing that sermon series by reading from verse 31 uh, from chapter 11 and discovering how a Canaanite prostitute was saved and even adopted into the family and promises of God because of her faith. And so we're going to be encouraged by that this morning. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 11.31, excuse me, it'll be on the back there too. So let's read that together. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. One sentence, but there's so much to to unpack in there, so we're going to try that this morning. Uh, Last week, you might recall that Pastor Blair delivered a wonderful message concerning uh, Joshua and the Israelites' faithfulness to God, which resulted in bringing down the walls of the sinful city of Jericho. Uh, But before this famous event took place, There was something just as significant, or arguably even more significant, happening within one of the very walls, which would soon be destroyed. The Spirit of God was moving in the heart of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. So the story goes like this. As the Israelites were moving into the promised land, Joshua decides to send a couple of (coughs) spies into the region to secretly scope it out to see what's going on, and at one point they sneak into Jericho to check out the city's fortifications. Unfortunately, it seems like these men weren't very great at being spies because, as it, tur- as it says in the book of Joshua, the, the king of Jericho gets informed that very evening that some men of Israel had come into the city to spy on them and search out all the land. And so uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how they were discovered so quickly, but it's safe to say that, you know, maybe that wasn't their specialty. Uh, I'm pretty sure a key aspect of spying is remaining incognito. So they're in big trouble at this point. You know, just right away, they walk into the city. They get found out. They're in trouble. What do they do? The good news, though, is that they'd been given safe lodgings at Rahab's house. And again, she was a prostitute who whose house actually resided, resided within one of the walls, which would have been typical for lower to middle class citizens of the age. And, and this is where she chose to keep these spies hidden from the king rather than give them away. And Joshua 2, 3 to 7 describes the exciting ordeal like this. It says, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut, 
as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So after reading this account, we have to ask, what, what would have motivated Rahab at that point to protect rather than give up these two Israelite spies? Surely she was putting her own life on the line for these two strangers by lying for them and courageously hiding them on her roof. So why would, why would she choose to do that? Why would she choose to betray her own people and her own city? Of course, the author of Hebrews sums up her motivation for doing this in one word, faith. Faith. Not faith in the men she was helping, but faith in their God. This she confesses to them explicitly in verses 8 to 11. Joshua 2, 8 to 11. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, those are strong words, I know, that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is clearly her statement of faith, right? She's heard about this awesome and powerful God of Israel and what he's done, and, and it turned her heart to believe in him by faith above anything else. Pastor Blair again mentioned last week how, how strongholds, like the walls of Jericho, were built to keep people safe and protected, but that the negative side effect of such semblance of safety is pride. We become prideful. We, we, we start to get this idea that, that no one can touch us or get to us. We don't need anybody else. And so while the people of Jericho, as Rahab says, they, they may have rightly been afraid of this Israelite God due to the stories they'd heard about him in Egypt and so on, the, the issue is that this fear obviously wasn't enough to deter their pride in themselves and in their idols and in their strength of their city walls which is why they didn't or, or couldn't humble themselves before God. Rahab, however, was singularly set apart here from everyone else in the city. Somehow, she understood differently. Based on what she'd heard of God, she'd recognized then that, that nothing was too impossible for him because he's in control of everything, she admits, including the future, right? Which, which meant that nothing would stand in his way. Not even the walls of Jericho. She knows it in her heart, which again she confesses in faith to the spies when she says, I know the Lord has given this land to you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She knows. What's faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. It's knowing. This is her faith. She knows. And on that note, as, as a church, we've been studying what faith is over the course of this summer. And I hope by now most of you have come to recognize that faith isn't just this static statement of belief, but that it's something which is multifaceted, evident, and dynamic in its nature. And we see this type of faith in Rahab's story as well. She confesses her faith here, but yet her faith isn't just revealed to us in that statement, as powerful as it is. It's also shown to us through her actions and in her care for others as well. More specifically then, what we'll see 
is that her faith is simultaneously a saving faith, an adopting faith, an active faith, and an altruistic faith. So we see four characteristics of faith in in her story here. That it's a saving faith, an adopting faith, an active faith, and an altruistic faith. And it's these four aspects of her faith which, which I want to discuss and highlight in greater detail this morning with the hope and prayer that, that it will be an encouragement and inspiration for us in our own lives and walks with God as well. So, first of all, we see in Rahab a saving faith. We see in her story a saving faith. That is, she is saved by her faith. Because what happens is after she rescues the spies, she then asks them to do the same for her. So let's read that. Joshua 2, 12 to 21. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So Rahab makes this arrangement with the spies. She'll keep their secret safe, and in return, they'll rescue her and her family, her whole household. So the spies agree and then make an oath that they'll keep that promise asking her to hang a scarlet cord outside her window as a sign of their oath and as an identifier of where she is. And then after Jericho falls, it says in Joshua 6, 22 to 25, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab. See, see they had been spies? They're, they weren't good at it. They're not spies anymore. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought, out, brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab... But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua saved her alive and she has lived in Israel to this day. Simply put, Rahab's newfound faith in God led to her and her family 
being saved from facing the same death and destruction which had befallen the city of Jericho under God's judgment. And if, if we read, in, we, we can read in Psalm 34, 15 to 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But then it also says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So what this, this passage is saying is that God is both just and merciful. He punishes the wicked, but yet at the same time, he also forgives and rescues those who cry out to him. And in this story, we're, we're seeing this duality take place. The Lord is at once casting his judgment on those who do evil and destroying the sinful city of Jericho, while also at the same time saving and rescuing Rahab and her family from certain death, since her heart was now turned toward him. What's interesting is that God must have actually preserved the part of the wall in which Rahab's house resided. The rest of the walls of Jericho fell over. But Rahab's household was somehow kept from harm. So j just imagine it. That one, that one portion of the wall still standing. And that would have been a beacon of God's grace and mercy among the rubble and ruin of his judgment. All because she now believed and trusted in God. This is saving faith. In Acts 16, there's a story about a jailer who comes to Paul and Silas and asks them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31 tells us their response. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the story of Rahab, right? She placed her belief in the Lord and was saved, her and her household. She and her family were taken out of sure death and given new life. And the same thing happens for us when we turn our hearts toward God through Jesus Christ. In our sin, we're headed for condemnation, we're headed for certain death, but with our faith in Jesus Christ, we are rescued from it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why Jesus himself tells us, from John 5.26, he says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Rahab was saved from death to life. And so are we when we turn to God through Jesus Christ. And, and for those of you who are, are questioning about, you know, whether or not you deserve to be forgiven for your sin or wondering if you're too far gone for God to even think about it, the good news is that Rahab herself also shows us here that no one is outside the bounds of receiving God's grace. For she herself was a prostitute. Obviously, she'd contributed to the many sins of Jericho which, got, which brought God's judgment upon that city. By her vocation alone, she was singular, singularly as guilty, if not more so, than anyone else of transgressing against God. But yet, God's grace is greater than her sin. He showed mercy towards her. He rescued her from, from the judgment she certainly deserved, simply because she turned her heart toward him in faith. 
And so again, Rahab's story proves that no one is out of reach from receiving salvation. No matter what you've done, no matter how dark your sin, no matter how guilty or ashamed you feel, you can find forgiveness and grace when you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You can be rescued from death and given new life. Especially since Jesus has already taken the initiative here and paid the punishment for all our sins already through his own sacrificial death at the cross. He already died for you and defeated death in his resurrection so that you can be set free and have life, eternal life. He wants you to receive it by faith. And so if you haven't, like Rahab, turn to the Lord in faith and find that salvation. We see in her a saving faith. Next, though, we can also see that Rahab's faith is an active faith. It's an active faith. That is, her faith wasn't just demonstrated by her words, but by her actions. In James 2, 14 to 17, he asks, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so Rahab is a great model for this, a great example for this, because we can see that her faith wasn't just in speech alone, but that it was alive. It was living. And we can see her faith is alive when she chooses to hide the spies on her roof. And we can especially see that her faith is alive when when she ties that scarlet cord to her window and keeps it there. And while this isn't, you know, explicitly mentioned in the narrative, we can imagine that she must have also witnessed through that same window which she let the spies out, the same window which she hung that cord from, that, that she probably also saw the Israelites marching around the city and blowing their trumpets day after day. It would have been an odd sight, to say the least, from her perspective. That would have been pretty weird to see. And after, so after seeing this display over and over again, seemingly accomplishing very little, just think of how tempting it would have been for Rahab to start to think to herself, maybe I was wrong. You know, me, 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 these people are just crazy. Maybe they're not going to rescue me. But yet, she doesn't. She keeps her faith. She remains steadfast. She keeps that scarlet cord tied to her window the whole time, proving that her faith in God was genuine. And this is a reminder for us that faith is alive and active. It's not just lip service. It's not just a static statement of belief. Real faith will consistently and naturally be proven and made evident in our lives through our works, and through our fruit-bearing actions. So our faith is a saving faith and an active faith. Next, we also find that Rahab's faith was an adopting faith. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving to Calgary with my family, and we were on Highway 2. And along that highway... There's a graveyard near the town of Granham, which is bordered by leafy greenery. Any, anyone have seen that graveyard? And whenever we pass this graveyard, like many other people, I'm sure, we get curious and perplexed even because there's this singular gravesite that sits beside it. 
just outside of its boundaries. It's, it's set apart, obviously and intentionally excluded from the other graves. And so every time I drive by this site, I, I, I wonder what the real story is there. But then I forget about it, and I don't look it up. But finally, now this is years, right? I've been driving to that, on that highway for years. But finally, this last week, I remembered to look it up, and I, I Googled the Granham Graveyard, and what I found was this article from 2006 titled, The Curious Case of the Solitary Headstone. And the article stated that the gravesite belonged to a woman named Mary Fitzpatrick, and that there were a number of, of theories as to why it was set apart. One theory was that it was simply a survey error, um, but then why would they put shrubbery beside it? I don't know. That doesn't make sense. But another one was that she had a cheap husband who didn't want to pay full price for a gravesite, which unfortunately is the plight of Audrey if she goes before me. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Another one was that maybe she would committed suicide, and so this supposedly made her unfit to lie with the other dead, which is sad if that's the case. But unsurprisingly, the, the favorite or most popular theory, regardless of whether or not it was the most plausible, was that Mary Fitzpatrick was known to be a scarlet woman, Ooh. otherwise known as a harlot or an adulterer. Because of this, she was then excluded from lying next to the bodies of the other, quote-unquote, quote, more righteous people. So whether that's the true story or not, I don't know. But what is true, though, is that we do often have this tendency in our, our religiousness or our self-righteousness to exclude or look down on or judge those who we feel are worse or more sinful or less deserving than us. There's a story in the Gospel of John where a woman is caught in adultery. And some men are about to stone her to death for it. But Jesus steps in and says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so this causes them all to drop their stones in conviction and walk away. But even more profoundly, Jesus then turns to this adulterous woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And by saying go and sin no more, he's not just telling her to stop sinning. That's not what's going on here. He's telling her that that's no longer who she is. Upon being saved by Christ, her identity is no longer as an adulterer or as a sinner, but as a child of God. John 1, 12 to 13. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Again, this is, this is Rahab's story. We find that she's not only rescued from the deserved destruction and punishment for her sin, right? She's also actually adopted into the family of God. It says she lived in Israel for the rest of her days. She's adopted into the family of God. One of the first Gentiles that is non-Jewish people in the Bible to do so. Showing that God's grace and mercy is for everyone, right? And so this means that her identity was no longer that she was a Canaanite prostitute. 
Rather, she was now one of God's people, grafted into the tribe and promises of God given to Abraham. In fact, when we read the genealogy of, of Jesus' descendants or ancestors at the beginning of Matthew, what, what we, we find, what we find is that Rahab is listed as one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. Think of how incredible that is. God brought her from being this foreign prostitute into being an active participant in God's promise of a coming Savior. That's powerful. Proving to us that while we as a society often tend to push out or alienate or look down on, on the marginalized and repulsive and those who don't belong, God lovingly invites them in by his grace so they can share both in his family name and in his inheritance. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember... Don't forget, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see in in Rahab that more than most, as this Canaanite woman and as a prostitute, she was certainly separated from God, this holy God, right? She was certainly separated from him and from God's people. But through her faith, she was adopted into both God's people and into his promise. And so like Rahab, if, if you believe in faith, this is who you are now. You're no longer who you used to be. No longer a foreigner. Now you belong, brought near by the blood of Christ. You're part of God's family as his sons and daughters. So in Christ, your identity is no longer defined by who you used to be, be, but is defined by how God sees you now. And he sees you and knows you and loves you as his own. And no one is excluded or left out of this. All are sealed by the same Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And so on the flip side of this, for us as, as believers... Let's be careful then to ensure that we're not excluding anyone from belonging or feeling like they do, right? Let's be sure that we're no longer identifying or or judging each other based on our past sins or previous actions or lifestyles, but that we're viewing and identifying each other the same way that God sees each of us as his own, as his family. Let's remember that the former prostitute is now a daughter of God. The former homeless man is now a son of the Almighty at home in the kingdom. The drug addict, the the gambler, the abuser, the tax evader, the alcoholic, the liar, the cheat, the orphan, the idolater. In Christ, they're no longer those things. They've been set free from that old life. In Christ, they're now born again, adopted, living members of the body of Christ. May God give us the grace to see each other and therefore love one another in that light. As family. So we see her faith is an adopting faith. It's a saving faith. It's an active faith. It's an adopting faith. And on that note, finally, we can see in Rahab that her faith is also altruistic. 
That is, her faith is expressed deeply in her care and concern for the salvation of others. So we see in her story that twice she acts in faith to save others. Once to rescue the spies at at the risk of her own life, and another time to rescue her family without a concern for her own life. Again, part of her deals with the spies is that that they they would rescue, she doesn't even mention herself, but that they would rescue her father and mother and all her sisters and brothers and everyone else who belonged to them as well. Which we, we know that they did. And, and this should give us pause. Because while we might say we do the same as her, the question is, do we though? Do we? As Western Christians... We've made our faith so individualistic and personalized and so self-centered that I feel like we've lost the plot. We've become so satisfied with our own personal salvation and spirituality that we barely give a concern to anyone else's. That's, That's their own decision. That's up to them. That's what we say, right? But is it? The truth is that that our faith was never meant to be just for ourselves, but rather for you and your household. It's also meant to be shared with your neighbor. It's meant to be humbly offered to your enemy. It's meant to build up the church. It's meant to be lit up and shining for all to see and experience, not hiding under a bushel for your own personal satisfaction and comfort. As as Charles Spurgeon wrote, this woman's faith was a sympathizing faith. She did not believe for herself only. That's key. She did not believe for herself only, but she desired mercy for her relations. Said she, I want to be saved, but that very desire makes me want to have my father saved, and my mother saved, and my brother saved, and my sister saved. If we've truly been saved by faith, we'll naturally, passionately, and intentionally desire to see others saved by faith as well. Especially those who are close to us. That's just the way it is. We might not always be successful, but we will desire it. For if you see a tornado heading your way, would you be the type of person to run for your life without telling anyone because you're only concerned with saving your own skin like a coward? Or would you be the type of person who, even at the risk of their own life, goes and tells as many people as they can to get out of the way before the tornado comes through? Or if upon experiencing the greatest thing you've ever experienced in your life, would you selfishly keep it to yourself and not tell anyone? This could be your little secret. Or would you want as many people as possible to know about it so they can experience it too? Because truly, salvation in Christ is the most wonderful thing in the world. How could we not want to share that love with others? How could we not want to share that freedom and grace with others? Especially those who are close to us. And of course, how could we not want to see others saved from judgment before it comes? That is, if we believe Christ will return soon, and that he's coming with righteous judgment, how could we keep silent? How could we fend for ourselves only? As Spurgeon again writes, the spirit of proselytizing is the spirit of Christianity. 
And we ought to be desirous of possessing it. If any man will say, I believe such and such a thing is true, but I do not wish anyone else to believe it, I will tell you it is a lie. He does not believe it, for it is impossible heartily and really to believe a thing without desiring to make others believe the same. And I am sure of this. Moreover, it is impossible to know the value of salvation without desiring to see others brought in. Again, Rahab's faith shows us and reminds us that our faith is not only concerned for me, but for the well-being and salvation of others as well. It's altruistic even, moving us to humble ourselves and even lay down our lives for their sake, if need be. So let your faith in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, compel you to share it with others. Let it, let it compel you to pray for their salvation. Let it compel you to lift up the broken and poor in Jesus' name. Let it compel you to invite others to church even, or even to your house, so they, they can experience your faith in action through your hospitality and love. Ultimately, your faith should compel you to hope and desire that others find it too. In conclusion then, as we learn from Rahab, let us be assured in our salvation which comes through Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice and be confident in our adoption and status as God's children. Let us consistently prove that our faith is genuine through living it out. And finally, let us be diligent and desirous in sharing our faith with others so that they can experience the same glorious salvation and new life that we've been given through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.